honor the reading of God's word this morning. Our scripture this morning is Psalm chapter 11, verses 1 through 7. Psalm 11, verse 1. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Josh Sainer. I'm one of the elders at Grace Christian Fellowship. It's good to see all of you, and it's my honor to be able to preach God's word this morning as Pastor Dave is on his study sabbatical. And today we are pausing from the Gospel of John. We'll resume in the fall, but today we start our summer series in the book of Psalms. And last summer we made it through the first ten. This summer, the plan is to get through the next nine, and Lord willing, over the next 13 to 14 years, we will make it through all 150. It's ambitious, but can be done. Well, briefly, why the Psalms? Well, there's many reasons, but one is they're filled with worship and praise, while they also detail the hardships of life. So they minister life-giving riches to the weary soul. Also, all nine of these psalms are psalms of David. Why does that matter? Why is that important? Well, David was a poor shepherd boy. He was also a mighty warrior and a king. He suffered greatly, and he was a sinner. And David is also a type of Christ, so there is much to be gained from the psalms of David. 19th century Anglican pastor, Charles Simeon summarizes the Psalms of David well in saying the following. They are a rich repository of experimental knowledge. David at different periods of his life was placed in almost every situation in which a believer, whether rich or poor, can be placed. And in these heavenly compositions, he delineates all the workings of the heart. So the Psalms of David are just as applicable for us today as they were for the original audience when they were written 3,000 years ago. And so with this, we turn to Psalms 11, our text this morning, which contains the trial and trust of King David. Please pray with me one more time for help. Father, this morning, we thank you for the word of God. Lord, we need the Holy Spirit. I need the Spirit of God, Father, in my weakness. I pray you'd give me boldness. I pray you'd protect my lips, that only the word of God would be spoken. And I pray for grace for everyone here, that they would have ears to hear the word of God, and that seeds would be planted, and that we would all leave this room today glorifying Christ, convicted of our sin, and forever changed. And in the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. Well, some of my favorite stories are the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And in the movie, The Return of the King, the fortified capital city of Gondor, Minas Tirith, 
has been surrounded by Sauron's evil army. Gothmog, the orc-like creature, can be heard saying, fear, the city is rank with it. The people inside are terrified, chaos has emerged, human heads are being flung over the walls, cave trolls are catapulting large stones into the fortified walls as the foundations crumble. Faramir, one of the heroes of the story, has been badly wounded and is on the verge of death. And his father, Denethor, who is the ruler and steward of Gondor, has let panic fully set in as he looks over the large terrace wall to see a beastly, vast marching army headed straight for him as far as the eye can see. And it's the sight and the sounds that throws him into utter despair. And it's captured perfectly as he cries, Rohan has deserted us. Theoden has betrayed me. Abandon your posts. Flee, flee for your lives. To which Gandalf the white wizard quickly gives him a smack of his staff to the face, one to the gut, and a finishing blow over his back and says, Prepare for battle. Return to your posts. Now, this dramatic visual adaptation of this famous battle in Return of the King really paints an ever-growing reality of the temptation that we, as Christians, face. What's that temptation? It's to fear. It's to despair. And it's to panic when we feel encircled by darkness and by wickedness and when the societal structures around us seem to be collapsing. The temptation is to lose all despair as David's counselors have in Psalm 11 when they ask the question, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Our enemy Satan, he wants us to succumb to fear and despair in the midst of the chaos of life and it sure seems like to me there are a lot of things now in this world to be fearful about. Growing persecution for the godly, political turmoil, wars, rumors of war, skyrocketing gas prices, rising inflation, economic disaster, just to name a few. And see, the enemy, he will use these things, he will use the trials of life to tempt our hearts as Christians, to abandon our posts and to flee to anything other than to the presence of Christ and him alone as our refuge. But the good news this morning is the Lord reigns. That's why we come to church to hear the word of God and to be reminded of the truth. The Lord is in control and he is a refuge for the righteous because he loves his saints. And because he loves his saints, sometimes he sovereignly allows us to pass through trial and tribulation so that the idols of safety in our hearts can be exposed. Idols that we do not even know exist. Well, this brings us to the text in Psalm 11. David is in the midst of calamity. He is being tempted to distrust and to despair in the midst of chaos. But thankfully, David is able to give hope to the reader. He's able to remind us that we can trust the Lord in the midst of any trial. And that really this morning is my main point. 
the righteous can trust the Lord in trial. And we're going to look at this through two main points. First, the righteous will have trial. It's a fact of life. The righteous will have trial. Second, the righteous can trust the Lord. Our first point this morning is the righteous will have trial. Well, what was David's trial, source of trial? It was chaos and turmoil. Look with me at verses 1b through 3. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrows to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, though we can't cross-reference the exact scenario in David's life here from 1st or 2nd Samuel, it's evident he's experiencing chaos in the form of persecution and the threat of societal collapse. These three first verses are advice given to David. They are not David's own words. They are advice given to him, likely by his trusted friends and counselors. Note again, verse 2, how it starts. Behold. Behold is an emphatic way of saying, look and see. David, look and see at the situation before you. Behold, the wicked are drawing their bows. They have knocked their arrows. And they secretly hide in the dark, waiting to shoot at you, to shoot and kill the upright in heart. In addition, as counselors ask in verse 3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And the Hebrew word here for foundation, sata, it has the sense of political and societal structure behind it. It's like a modern building that rests upon a large amount of concrete buried just below the earth to provide stability. Here in David's context, the foundations are the moral and the societal and political institutions that support society, and they're at, thre they're at threat of collapsing. And what happens when the foundations of a society collapse? Chaos emerges. Just watch one of the hundreds of post-apocalyptic movies that are out there, and you'll know what I'm talking about. So David's advisors are raising the question, when peace, safety, society are gone, what can the righteous do about it? Well, what was David's temptation in this trial? His temptation was to flee in despair. Look with me at verse 1b. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? David was tempted to panic and to flee in despair. The advice given to him was to flee like a bird to your mountain. It's the whispering voice of temptation when chaos strikes and everything around you is about to collapse. Your heart to flee in panic. Now, most commentators believe that the simile used here, flee like a bird to your mountain, is not focused on the location being the mountain, but rather the heart attitude. It's like David in the moment of panic, where is your heart going to turn? 
like a defenseless, hopeless little bird with no confidence, when chaos strikes, it flies immediately away to safety. Now, it's important here to make a distinction. The Bible is not saying, and I am not saying this morning, that it is wrong to flee for one's life and safety. David himself fled numerous times at the hand of Saul and once at the hands of his son Absalom. The apostle Paul and his co-laborer Barnabas, they fled the city of Iconium when they learned of the threat that they were going to be stoned. One of my favorite church hero histories, the Englishman William Tyndale, he lived the last decade of his life as a fugitive as he was being hunted down like a dog across the continent of Europe. Why? Because he was translating the Bible into English so his countrymen could know the word of God. And eventually he did get caught and paid the ultimate price. But the Holy Spirit-inspired text of Psalm 11 here is after something more particular than fleeing for one's own life. That specifically is, in time of great trial and tribulation, in what and in whom will your ultimate hope and trust rest in? Brothers and sisters, a day may very well come in our lifetime where it is necessary to flee for safety, for being a Christian. The word of God is clear. In the world, you will have tribulation, not might, will. But when great trial and tribulation comes, will you give in to the temptation of despair? Will you lose all hope? In that day, in what and whom will you find your ultimate safety in? Well, thankfully, David serves as a model of resisting this temptation to panic and to despair. So what was David's response in trial? Refuge in the Lord. Refuge in the Lord. Look with me at verse 1. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? David is boldly claiming that his hope and his trust is in the Lord, his refuge. The Christian Standard Bible translates this verse as having said, I have taken refuge in the Lord. It's settled. I have taken refuge. And what's amazing in the word of God is in the original language, this word refuge, it has the primitive root meaning to flee, to flee for protection. So paraphrasing David, he's saying, when I already have fled to the Lord for protection as my refuge, how can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? See, David's source of hope was not in his mountain. It was not in his military prowess. It was in the Lord, his refuge, as shield and protector, this rock of his salvation. Christians in America today, it sure seems like we are facing a growing hostility. Sure seems like the moral fabric of the world around us is deteriorating, at least from what it once was. Immoral is now considered moral. Up is down, left is right, darkness is light. 
as Dan prayed this morning. The topic of abortion has been in our country here for the last couple months. Consider this website that I recently saw from Colorado. There's an abortion clinic called CARE. CARE. The top tagline of the site reads, safe and compassionate abortion care for late-term abortions. Late-term. This site promotes the assistance of third trimester abortions. As Dan also prayed this last week, I believe on Monday, Henson Baptist Church in Portland, led by Pastor Michael Lawrence, friends with Pastor Dave, their church offices came under attack because of this recent ruling. ruling. They were notified in advance that a rioters were planning to march, so they hired a contractor to board up the windows and to board up the doors. But before they were able to, about 150 people were marching towards, and they fled for their mountains. And they came, and they smashed the windows, they smashed the doors, and they sprayed anti-Christian vile messages over the church office building. The uh, reporter was abused with mace and umbrellas. And within a moment, everyone fled, everyone meaning those that attacked, into pre-planned parked cars. It was strategically done. Behold, the wicked bend the bow to shoot at the righteous and the upright at heart. So, what mountain of refuge is whispered in your ear by the enemy when you're attempted to escape living the Christian life when it becomes too difficult? Where will your heart and mind flee to for safety and protection? What will your soul trust in for deliverance? Will it be to mentally check out for a couple days Take a vacation to binge watch Netflix for the weekend? Will it be illicit sex, pornography, drugs, to mind, to, uh, to have your mind be numb? Will it be the next election? Will it be another Supreme Court ruling? When living as a Christian in this society is too difficult, will you flee society? Will you flee the culture? Are you planning to flee to your mountain, to live so far out remotely in the country where you have cut yourself off completely from church, fellowship, and community? Well, I'd be lying to you if these were not temptations that my own heart has. But listen, the Republican Party is not your savior. The next Elected officials are not your savior. The Constitution of the United States of America, which I am thankful for, is not your savior. And Idaho is not your mountain of refuge. <laughs> <laughs> only, only the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory is your only hope and refuge in this lost and broken world. Amen? So this morning, if anything else is your refuge, I ask you by the grace of God, repent. Repent because idols are false gospels. Idols are not just metal and wood things carved that people worshiped 4,000 years ago. Idols can be false gospels, false saviors, 
They can be anything we turn to for hope and safety other than the Lord. And God is a jealous God. The first commandment, Exodus 23, tells us, you shall have no other gods before you. Why? False gods cannot save you. And because the Psalms of David are experimental knowledge, David was able to say in the midst of the trial he was experiencing, in the Lord I take refuge. A few years ago, I've mentioned this story in the past, but a few years ago there was a speaker at the Spurgeon Fellowship here locally, and I was really convicted by what he said, and I'm paraphrasing. He essentially said, don't let your hearts be tempted to wish you could go back to the 1950s, before the sexual revolution of the 60s, when everything seemed to be fine and dandy. Why? Because God has sovereignly allowed you and I to be born today in this world, in this time, in this culture. And we have a Bible and we have a gospel that is powerful to save the brokenness that we see in this world before us. Listen, if we withdraw in fear, how can we, the church, be, as Jesus called, the salt of the earth? How can we, the church, be the light to the world, a lamp placed on a stand that brings light to a lost and dying world? Christians are not called to withdraw in fear. We are not called to abandon our post, to flee society and culture like the Amish. Instead, we're called to engage the, word, the people of this world with the word of God. And if that means persecution, it means more glory for you. If it means death, then it means to be present with the Lord. See, the enemy wants us to flee to abandon our post, to cut ourselves off from all the sources of life that we have in the triune God. But instead, it's time. It's time to stand. It's time by, uh, to have faith and to preach Christ and the hope of Jesus Christ crucified to a lost and dying world. And I need courage just as much as you, possibly even more. Now, the Bible nowhere says that Christians are called to an easy life. Nowhere does it say that. Instead, we're called to take up our crosses. We're called to die daily to ourselves. Had Jesus listened to the temptation of Peter when he said, not so, Lord, you'll never go to the cross, had he listened to that temptation and succumbed to that fear, then we would be people without hope. We would be lost. But thankfully, Jesus did not. And for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He despised the shame. And now we can be fully confident that we have a solid rock upon which we can stand. We can hide in the cleft of the rock. We have a tried and true refuge to hide in, the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, like David, when temptation is whispered in our ear to flee, we can all echo and say, how can you say to my soul, flee like a bird when I have taken refuge in the Lord? Our first point this morning was the righteous will have trial. 
the righteous will. Our second point this morning is the righteous can trust the Lord. We can trust the Lord. Why can we trust the Lord? Because he is sovereign. Look with me at verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. Here David is describing a sovereign ruler in verse 4. And David gives two descriptions of the Lord's sovereignty. First he says, the Lord is in his holy temple and the Lord's throne is in heaven. Regarding the temple, David is not speaking of the earthly temple. And we know this because it was his son Solomon who built the temple after David's death. Instead, the holy temple signifies the Lord's dwelling. It signifies where the Lord is at, where his throne is established. It signifies the Lord's position as ultimate ruler, ultimate ruler above every other earthly reign and rule, where the Lord sits as transcendent and where he is in absolute control of all things. Often, fear comes to us when we lack control. If our trust is not fully in the sovereign Lord, when trial and tribulation comes, often we will find ourselves then sinfully overwhelmed with fear and anxiety. I remember being on a flight about 20 years ago, and I don't recall where we were going, but I recall what was happening. It was the most turbulent, terrifying flight I have ever been on in my life. What seemed like two to three hours of being bounced around like a basketball between the legs, around the back, we were finally slam dunked on the landing. <laughs> it was terrifying. Do you know how much control I had over that situation? Zero. My worrying and anxiety produced zero effort to helping that plane land safely. But there was someone on the plane who had control. It was the pilot. And in that moment, my only hope in that time of distress and for safety was in the captain of the aircraft. And brothers and sisters, the captain in this life, our captain, is far greater than a pilot on an airplane, far greater than a fellow passenger who's experiencing the same trials and storms of life that we are. Our captain of salvation is the Lord God Almighty, capital L-O-R-D, as Psalm 11 says, which signifies the Hebrew word Yahweh, meaning the great I am the self-existing one. Our captain, the Lord, exists outside of time. He is omnipresent. He is all-powerful. He is the one who controls the winds and the waves. Why? Because he himself created them. Therefore, that means he is in absolute control. So when trials come our way, we can have confidence like David, knowing the Lord is in control. He is sovereign. There is no one greater to, to turn to than the Lord as our refuge. 
Well, why else can we trust the Lord? We can trust him because he's righteous. He's righteous. Look with me, verses 5 through 7. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Now because the Lord is righteous, that means he is just. He is perfectly just. This verse says he tests the righteous, which we'll come back to in a moment, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. That means he has rejected that one. Now, when we see wickedness and evil uh, surrounding us and, and continually to grow around us, it is easy to get discouraged, especially when it seems like the wicked have their way. Recently, I had not one, but two of my work vehicles fuel tanks drilled and hacksawed so that the fuel could be drained, all for a couple hundred dollars. It cost me over $2,000 and a month waiting for one of the fuel tanks to be delivered to the body shop so it could be replaced. I talked to some of my SPD friends about the situation. Some of them are in the room here today. And the reality is not much could be done about it not in this legal system that we have, not in the, the world we're living in. But some of you have faced far, far greater injustice than this. Some of you have experienced physical, sexual, and emotional abuse. Some of you have been victims of identity theft and fraud, abandonment, infidelity from parents, loved ones, spouses, and many of you will never experience justice in this life. And it's possible that some of us here in this room today will be imprisoned in the future for being identified with Christ, for being righteous. What can the righteous do when the foundations are destroyed and the unrighteous have their way? Hopelessness and despair is what the enemy whispers in your ear. But listen, we can trust the Lord because the Lord will have ultimate justice. If you've been sinned against in this life and you do not see justice, know this. The Lord himself was sinned against first and foremost because he has created all of us and he has created all things. And the Lord will have justice. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, to repay, not ours. Now, these two verses are sobering verses, verse 5 and 6. Let's look at them again. They're sobering, but they are the word of God. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. The cup often throughout Scripture has been a metaphor of God's holy, righteous judgment being poured out upon the wicked. 
David brings to mind and recalls the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, where God rained down judgment with fiery coals and sulfur. Listen, a day is coming when the sovereign and righteous Lord in all of his glory will pronounce justice on this wicked and evil in this life. But you know what? God is also a God of mercy and grace. That means there is hope. There is hope for the unrighteous. It means we need to be reminded that before we came to Christ, before we were converted and born again, we also were like the unrighteous. Paul asked the question in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Then he goes on to say, after he describes the immorality, and such were some of you, but you have been washed you have been sanctified, and you have been justified in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the good news of the gospel this morning for all of us. There is hope. There is power in the gospel for salvation. And that means for us, the righteous depicted here in Psalm 11, the Lord Jesus Christ is our refuge from the wrath of God. Because at the cross, he bore every ounce of punishment. He absorbed every uh, ounce of wrath that you and I deserve for our sin. And some of my favorite verses here in 2 Corinthians state, for our sake, he made him sin who knew no sin. Why? That we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. The mysteries of the cross are beyond comprehension. The unrighteous to the righteous, the broken to the whole, and the filthy to the pure and clean, all done by the work of Jesus Christ because God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he is a refuge for the righteous. And sometimes, because we are the righteous, God tests the righteous. He tests his own, as the scripture says. Now understand, this testing is not a test where God has set us up to fail. Rather, it's a testing to refine, to purify us so that we will become more righteous, more like his perfect son, Jesus Christ. Sometimes in God's providence, we are called to suffer. Suffer loss, the loss of job, the loss of finances, the loss of loved ones, the loss of health, the loss of liberty and freedom. And I lost my place. <laughs> Here we go. But that's how God refines his saints. Listen, your best life now, that phrase, that is a false gospel the prosperity gospel that offers health and wealth and no suffering is a false gospel because it denies the fact and the reality that sometimes the sovereign Lord allows trial to refine us. Righteousness is often produced through suffering in God's economy. 
Consider Job, who in a moment of time lost virtually everything but his own life. And Job was considered a righteous man. But listen to what he says in Job 23.10. But he knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. Gold, brothers and sisters, is what tribulation produces for the righteous. We can trust him because he is righteous. Finally, why else can we trust the Lord? We can trust the Lord because he rewards the righteous. He rewards the righteous. Well, what specifically is the reward? It's his presence. Look with me at verse 7. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. This promise of seeing the Lord's face and being in his presence It has both a present and a future hope to it. In this life, the promise is for the righteous that we now can behold the face of the Lord. Remember how David's panicked counselors started their advice back in verse 2? Behold the wicked. David, there's calamity. Flee because the situation is hopeless. But because David found and fled to the Lord for protection the Lord his refuge. Here at the end of the psalm, he is able to tell us, the upright, the righteous, shall behold the face of the Lord. What exactly does that mean, to behold the face of the Lord? Well, it means simply this, that Jesus, through the cross, made a way. He opened a door so that you and I have full access to the triune God. The temple that covered the veil, excuse me, that covered the Ark of the Covenant in the temple. When Jesus was on the cross and when he gave up his spirit and he said, it is finished, that veil was rent or torn from top to bottom, signifying that we now have access to the Lord. That means when you are tempted, tempted to fear, when you're anxious, when you're troubled, when you sin, you immediately, without wait, can access the presence of the Lord and behold him in all of his glory. Practically, beholding the face of the Lord, it happens in different ways. For example, it happens through intake of God's word. It happens when you open the Psalms and you see the lament and the praise of David and the authors. It happens when you devour the four Gospels and you let the riches of Christ's life minister to you. It happens when you look at the book of Acts and you see how Paul, through all of his trial and tribulation, found comfort in the Lord, his refuge. We also can behold the face of the Lord through prayer. It means you can commune with God the Father. You can turn to him and approach the mercy seat boldly asking for help in time of need. It also means to gather like all of you here are on a holiday weekend for church. It means when you sing to one another and you hear the preaching of God's word, you behold his face and you become more transformed, more like the Son of God as you reflect his glory. 
Now there's also a future promise, a future hope of reward in beholding the face of the Lord. A day is coming, as sure as tomorrow is the 4th of July, that the sovereign and righteous Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, as we sang about this morning, will come back in full glory, and he's coming back to judge the wicked and to reward the righteous. The last book of the Bible, Revelation, it speaks of a day of great tribulation, a day where God's wrath will be poured out on this wicked world. Revelation chapter 6, 14 describes it like this. The sky vanished, a scroll, like a scroll being rolled up. Every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals, the rich and the powerful, everyone, free and slave, they hid themselves. Where? They took their refuge in the mountains, and they called to the mountains and the rocks. Listen to their advice, their futile, hopeless advice. Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? But listen to the promise the promise of future hope and reward for the righteous. The last chapter in the book of the Bible, Revelation 22, verses three through five say the following. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Amen. Saints, this is our hope. This is our reward, that through, for all eternity, we will behold the face of the Lord in person. We will see all of his glory in a world without sin, without brokenness, without death, but joys and pleasures that the eye has not seen, the ear has not heard, and the mind has yet to conceive. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We can trust the Lord in trial because he will reward the righteous with his presence. The main idea this morning of the sermon was this, the righteous can trust the Lord in trial. We looked at this through two points. The righteous will have trial, and the righteous can trust the Lord. Let me close in saying this. If you currently do not have this hope, if you currently do not have the hope that Jesus Christ is your Savior, I'd ask you this morning today to believe that Jesus paid the penalty that you deserve. Believe that he died on the cross in your place and that he rose victoriously from the grave, and that he is coming back one day, hopefully soon. If you believe this, you can also have the hope and the reward of the righteous. I would ask that you do that this day. Amen. Please pray with me.